Man, amen. Thank you for standing. Thank you for being a part of that. You can go ahead and have a seat. Uh, my name is Luke. I want to welcome you again to the Capitol Church. We understand that a holiday weekend like this only has so much time and space and ability to be places, and so we value a lot that you've chosen to spend some of Easter here with us at the Capitol Church this morning. Uh, so thank you for that and welcome. Uh, if you have a hard time seeing the screens, I can definitely understand. Typically, we use that screen behind us, but the theater has a light bulb out. And so genuine apologies if it's, if it's a little bit hard to see. Uh, but also, we have several eye doctors in the room we would be happy to connect you with. Um, so shout out Ohio State Optometry. Uh, we can definitely take care of some of your problems. Um, when I was in high school, I played on uh, the high school basketball team, and there was a group of five old guys who came to like all of our games home and away. Even when I graduated and went on to play in college, they would like go to my games. They would like follow us around because they were such huge Abington Heights basketball fans. And there was one guy in particular named Gene uh, who always wore like the most incredible sweaters. Every time I saw him at these games, I would like immediately notice like, man, that sweater is banging. The problem is I, I would go up to him and I would compliment him on his sweaters and he never actually bought that I was being serious. It's like, I'm 18 years old. I, I would have put him maybe around 90 at the time. And so he thinks there's like, there's a huge gap between us that he thought I wasn't being serious. I was just trying to be nice. But I remember one sweater in particular, it was like a nice earth tone, but it had uh, like a golf green on one side of it uh, that had a flag and a golf ball. And the other side had a golfer who had just hit that ball over to an island green. And I thought, you know, you, you never have to wonder when you wear that type of sweater, like is somebody else in the room going to have it? You're never going to walk in and be concerned like, man, a couple of us are wearing this sweater. That was never the case. And I always used to tell Gene, I'd be going through the layup lines, run over and be like, Gene, you've done it again, man. That sweater is incredible, but he never bought it. I think a lot of us, as we approach Christianity and even the claims of Jesus can sit in that same seat as Gene. Like, that's a crazy and ridiculous claim that Jesus makes, or Christianity in general makes some pretty outlandish claims. The things Jesus said and he claimed could put you in the same seat as Gene. Like maybe you just can't buy it. Maybe even you want to buy it, but it seems like too much of a stretch for you to actually buy it. Like, like here are some of the claims of Jesus. Like he was conceived by God but not through sex. He was just like implanted into a human woman. He said that he was both God and man. He said he had authority to forgive sin. He said he had the power over the natural and the supernatural world. He said that he could actually be a substitute for the consequences of sin for us in our place. He said there was only one pathway to peace with God and he was it. He said he, needed, he was needed for abundant life. Like we couldn't actually have soul level, soul level satisfaction and contentment outside of Jesus. That's one of his claims. He predicted that he would be killed, but that, that was his plan the whole time. And he said he would soon rise from the dead. Does any of this sound crazy to you? 
because it sounds crazy to me and it sounded crazy to the world that was around Jesus when these claims were being made. Now, I, I wanna bring you into a little bit of a timeline and maybe this is bringing you in for the first time or reminding you of the timeline we've talked about both this week and last week. This is the final Sunday and what, what has historically in Christianity been called Holy Week or Passion Week. It started last Sunday and it's been a week of events that are unfolding in the life of Jesus and his followers that, that really crank up the intensity. Jesus, his entire life was making intentional decisions and there's big moments and there's big intentions behind that, but then there's even big outcomes from what Jesus is doing in the life that he's living. But once you get to Passion Week, that dial is turned up a bit. And, and what I want to do is not only examine here this morning some of what goes on in the week, but we're actually gonna go to a place that would historically be today in Holy Week, Sunday, Easter Sunday morning. So if you have a Bible, this is a great time to grab it and turn to Matthew chapter 27, which you can find in the back third of your Bible. If, if you're new to the Bible, as we all once were, uh, there's a table of contents page you can go to. You can pull out a device and try and get there, or you can just chill, and, and I'll read it to us. I'll bring us there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and would be interested in a Bible, as always, we've got a table out in the lobby. You can grab one of those on your way out, and no strings attached. We would just love to give you one of those. Uh, now, last week, we entered into the story of Jesus's closest friends and followers during the time that he's arrested, beaten, and ultimately mocked. And, and they're in a devastating place watching this unfold. And I can understand why they're devastated because they've lost sight of his mission. So what they're watching happen in the life of Jesus is incredibly concerning. But I can understand why. They, they've watched Jesus heal people. They've watched him demonstrate power over the natural in the supernatural world. They'd watched him feed crowds from nothing. They'd watched him do all of these crazy things and it caused them to get his ultimate mission confused. They understood that he had the power and influence to step, step into kingship. Like he could be Roman King Jesus if he wanted to be and he talked about a kingdom and so those around him thought, man, Jesus is better for the world. And so if we can get him into kingship, that would be better for everybody. They're wanting to forward that mission. The problem is that was never the mission of Jesus. But in their minds, the confusion is this was like King Jesus here to establish the kingdom he talks so much about. This was powerful Jesus who did whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. His plan and his purpose was never altered by other people. This was compassionate Jesus, who only loved and served people with every waking moment. This was provider Jesus, who could not only provide for the physical needs, but could actually step in and provide oppression or relief from oppression, the Roman Empire at the time. And this Jesus was where they put all of their hope and their confidence, even their own identity. And the problem comes when they watch this Jesus get arrested and dragged off and beaten and mocked. This is an issue and they're devastated by it. And the nightmare continues when they throw Jesus up on a cross. And for the next several hours, they watch at his feet, him suffer and then ultimately die. This is the hero everything was built upon. And now we're watching him 
being taken from the cross, dead, and thrown into a tomb. This is devastating. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. Because the second Jesus is killed, all of the wild things he said and he claimed are put to rest with him. Like you can't be the things Jesus claimed to be and then on the other side of that be killed like every other man. So you can understand this emotional jarring that's happening to his followers. They thought Jesus was a huge deal and they wanted to push him into kingship. The problem was that was never the mission of Jesus. And so he allows himself to be beaten and arrested and then put up on a cross, killed, thrown into a tomb and they're devastated. This is Friday of Holy Week. This is Friday of Passion Week, but the story of Jesus and the story of his followers continues. And I think it's the story of Jesus paired with the story of his followers that is incredibly impactful for us here today. We're in Matthew 27, but before we get there, let me just remind us a little bit about what's going on. Jesus has been killed. He's been put into a tomb. Everybody in the world, from his closest friends to his killers, thought this story was over. All they needed was to see his dead body being put in a tomb for them to say, okay, this story's over. Jesus wasn't who they thought. He wasn't who they wanted him to be. It must be time to go back to normal life. Friday of Passion Week. But Sunday comes, and I want to enter into the story here. He's been killed. He's been put into the tomb. And here's where we're at in Matthew 27. I'm going to start reading in verse 62. Here's what it says. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Now, this is the religious authority going to the government system. And here's what they say, verse 63, sir, they said, we remember that while Jesus was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. They can call to their mind this narrative Jesus was trying to circulate. Like at some point, Jesus knew he was in the hands of powerful people that was going to lead to his death, but they had also heard him say things like, I'm going to let you kill me, but there's going to be a day when I'm going to rise from the dead. They knew this. So they bring it to the government, verse 64. So give the order for the tomb that Jesus is laying in to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples, his friends, his followers, they may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. So the response of the government, verse 65, take a guard. Pilate answered, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. This is our situation, the religious authority. They've finally killed Jesus. He's done. Everything should be put to rest. He is not what he claimed to be. Put it to rest, put him in the tomb. The problem is they, they had heard a, a narrative starting to circulate. And they didn't want that narrative to start circulating in a way that would give hope to people and would drive momentum to his friends and his followers that there's more coming and Jesus may raise from the dead. They think he's dead. So they go to the government and ask the government to sanction some guards outside of his tomb because if they can just get to the end of the third day, then everything that comes with Jesus is officially finished. 
Like he is not who he said he was. He did not come to do the things he claimed to do. If we can just keep him in the tomb through three days, we'll be all set. The government allows for this. This is the plan in place. So he dies Friday. They put him in the tomb and immediately stationed guards outside to guard any nonsense that would stir up a narrative that he may be alive at the end of this story. Matthew 28, verse one, we're gonna continue. Here's what it says, verse one. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Verse three, his appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Now, this is not unique to the guards here at this situation. A lot of times in your Bible, when angels show up onto the scene, it is a terrifying sight. This is not normal. It is not natural. They've never seen anything like it. So you've got these guards, likely hardened guards by battle who see this like crazy sight of an angel and they're so freaked out and terrified that they pass out. It's not unique to them. Verse five, the angel said to the women, don't be afraid, which again, a reasonable response is fear. The angel says, don't be afraid for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, he is risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going on ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. Verse eight, so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Now this is the exact situation the religious authority was trying to avoid. They wanted guards there so there couldn't be possible momentum stirring from Jesus being alive. But now you've got these two women who are at least are told, there's no proof behind this, they're told that Jesus is alive and well. So the angel tells them, go start circulating that story. Go tell the closest friends and followers of Jesus that he is alive and he's gonna meet them in a particular place. This is the nightmare the religious authority was trying to avoid. But the point is, it's narrative. It doesn't have any proof yet. You've just got two ladies who are starting this story and they're going to move it beyond until verse nine. Verse nine says, suddenly Jesus met them. He met these ladies. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, clasped his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Another valid statement. These two women were at the foot of the cross watching Jesus die a horrific death. You can imagine how terrifying it would be to see that guy up on the cross a couple days ago, to watch him be put in a tomb and to now see him standing in front of you healthy. So Jesus' response is, hey, I understand you're a little bit freaked out. Don't be afraid in the sight of Jesus alive in front of them causes them to throw themselves down at his feet, even grabbing a hold of his feet. I love the language there because this is not a hallucination. It's not a dream. They wanna to physically touch Jesus. Like, are you actually here? They touch him and they worship him. 
This is the ultimate nightmare. And Jesus says, don't, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will also see me. This is now becoming more than just a hopeful narrative. There's women now who feel like at least they've seen the risen Jesus. And they've been told to circulate this story because Jesus is going to appear to some other people. The hope of this story, the narrative, it's starting to gain momentum. And so when the guards come rolling back into the station, they try to get ahead of this nightmare. Verse 11, while the women were on their way, the story's out, they're going to spread the narrative. Some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you're to say his disciples came during the night, they, they stole him away while we were asleep. Verse 14, if this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and they did what they were instructed. And the story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Here's the attempted cover-up. The problem is the cover-up doesn't have the same energy and power behind it because in the midst of the inner circle of the, of the cover-up are people who know it's untrue. They try to get ahead of it. They try to change the narrative Jesus has risen from the dead, or at least that's what these two ladies are saying. But everything changes for his close friends and followers once we get to verse 16 and 17. Because let me remind you of what's going on in their world. They watched Jesus, the hero, the king they wanted. They watched him be beaten and mocked and spit on, which was in and of itself devastating. Then they watched him get thrown up onto a cross, they thought maybe he could escape, maybe he would bring justice, but he doesn't. He allows himself to be killed. He's thrown into a tomb. They're devastated. They go back to their normal life. But then these two ladies come rolling in and say, hey, Jesus is actually alive and well. And here's what it says in verse 16 and 17. I think it's so helpful. Then the 11 disciples, they went to Galilee to investigate this narrative to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. In verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him. Like here he is. The story's not over. This is dead Jesus in the tomb. Jesus, here he is in front of us. But verse 17 ends, I think in a really helpful way, but some doubted, it says. But some doubted. I love how verse 17 ends because I think it's, I think it's helpful. All of the claims of Jesus rise and fall on this unbelievable narrative that he was going to die, but then be raised. So if that doesn't happen, everything Jesus claimed to be and everything he said was true goes to death with him. Everything hangs on the resurrection. So what's helpful is the people who had an eyewitness account of his death and him being thrown into a tomb, when they hear that he might be alive, it would be reasonable for us to doubt that narrative because it is actually and literally unbelievable. 
If you've ever had a death in the family or a death of a loved one, it would be outside of your reasoning and thinking for somebody to come up after you've already spent several days mourning and feeling devastated and crushed and lamenting and remembering all of the times and the stories that you've created with this person. And then somebody shows up to the scene and says, hey, actually, they're not dead. We would call that insensitivity. We would call that a ridiculous narrative that they should stop because you don't give hope to people where there shouldn't be hope given. You say, I'm sorry. That's incredibly difficult. I'm sorry. But these women come rolling in with this hopeful narrative. And these guys end up seeing Jesus in the flesh. And it goes from a narrative that people were talking about to actually seeing the man and changing everything about them. This changes everything for them. Because if you don't have a good reason to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, then it would absolutely be reasonable for you not to believe it and to doubt it. That doesn't make you crazy. That makes you human. It shouldn't surprise us that in, as this story's unfolding, some doubted what they were hearing because it's genuinely crazy. Jesus is alive. How can that be true? Some doubted, but the friends and followers of Jesus who went to the mountain to investigate the narrative, they see him. And they realize in this moment with Jesus standing in front of them that everything he said he was, everything he claimed to be true is now actually believable. Jesus was who they wanted him to be at the end of the day. He stepped forward and said, I am who I've always told you I was. The things I've told you that are going to happen, they have happened. I am here to save the world. That's the mission that continues to move forward. It's changed everything for them. It's not a hallucination. It's not a dream. Here Jesus is in front of them. Now, we've highlighted the story of his friends and followers here the last two weeks, from the beginning of Passion Week to the end of Passion Week, largely because this week is full of emotional jarring, like craziest week of their life for sure. And even craziest few days, they, they go from devastation to like hope that Jesus is alive to finally seeing him and it changing the entire trajectory of their lives. I want to zoom back into their story because something happens here on Sunday of Passion Week that alters history, literally moving forward. It alters their life in such a significant way that every single one of them, the 11 who show up at the mountainside with Jesus are so radically changed away from going back to their normal life because Jesus has died to being thrusted forward in a life where they are so passionate in belief about his resurrection that it changed everything for them moving forward. I wanna highlight some of their stories. I wanna remind you that this is a story that history tells, not Christianity. This isn't the, the Christian account of what happens to these guys moving forward. This is what history says about the 11 closest to Jesus after at least they claimed to see the risen Jesus. Here's the first one, Peter. 
He's a man who was as close to Jesus as anybody, has this major event in his life right here in Passion Week where he denies knowing Jesus. It's devastating to him. But he claims to have seen the resurrected Jesus. In fact, from Sunday of Passion Week and beyond, he preaches his first sermon. And it's interesting that his first sermon's main goal is to convince the crowd that Jesus has risen from the dead. Peter would go on to be crucified, not for what he believed, but for what he said he saw, which was a resurrected Jesus. And before he was killed, he's known for bringing the message of Jesus to many, many places. He has a brother named Andrew who was in the circle. Andrew is known for his relentless pursuit of what is true. In fact, he left his full-time job of fishing to investigate who is Jesus and what are his claims. Andrew followed Jesus for three years and he saw the resurrected Jesus and went on to give his life to, to, to seeing more people believe, love, and follow Jesus. He's known for bringing many uh, to the message of Jesus in Asian cities. Like he, he's the one who really pushed that message uh, oh, eastward. He's later known to be crucified, not for what he believed, but for, again, what he said he saw, which was a resurrected Jesus. James was one of the first of the 11 closest followers of Jesus to be killed. In AD 44, he was beheaded, but not for what he believed. He was beheaded for what he said he saw. John he would eventually write the book of the Bible, also named John. He writes that book so that he can give an account of the life of Jesus. In fact, here's what he says about the reason he wrote that book. He says, the world could not contain the amount of volumes that could be written about what he has seen being around Jesus. And then he says this, but I write these things to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We get that from John 20. This is the guy on Friday of Passion Week that abandons and leaves Jesus and goes back to his normal life because clearly Jesus wasn't who he said he was. And yet he has an encounter with the risen Jesus and it changes everything so much so that he writes an account of Jesus' life to try to also convince people of his resurrection. He started several churches in several different cities. Later, he was ultimately dropped in a boiling pool of oil, which he survived. But then he was banished to an island to live the rest of his life in isolation. And he's done and put there, not because of what he said he believed, because of what he said he saw. Matthew, who's also known as Levi, he's an ex-government employee, an ex-tax collector who became the one to write the book that also has his name, Matthew. We've been in this. He's the one that read the account or, or that wrote the account we just read. He obviously claims that Jesus rose from the dead and he claimed to see it himself. Later, Matthew was hacked to death with an ax, not for what he believed, but for what he said he saw James, the brother of Jesus, believed his own brother rose from the dead. He watched his brother die. And then he believes that he saw risen Jesus on the other side of his death. He would be beaten and stoned and eventually finished off with a club to his head, not for what he believed, but for what he said he saw. Philip, 
Historians believe Philip is responsible for the message of Jesus going to a city called Phrygia. He eventually was beaten, thrown in prison, and then crucified, not for what he believed, but for what he said he saw. Thaddeus, also known as Jude, he was crucified in Edessa in AD 72, not for what he believed, but for what he said he saw. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, is the one who was very skeptical of Jesus didn't buy who Jesus said he was and what he was about. But his opinion changes. He actually buys into the message after the resurrection. He also translated the book of Matthew in your Bible into the language of India so they could also hear the story of Jesus. They could also be convinced of his resurrection. He was beaten at length and then he was crucified, not for what he believed, but for what he said He saw there's Thomas who has historically earned the nickname of Doubting Thomas. He's earned that nickname because he was there when Jesus died. And so when this narrative is circulating that Jesus may actually be alive, that he has died, but he's risen from the dead. When that narrative starts circulating, Thomas doesn't buy it until Jesus shows up in front of Thomas and he sees him. And he puts his hands on his wounds. From this point forward, Thomas, the trajectory of his life is getting more people to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, which means more people to believe Jesus was who he said he was and what he was about was actually true and available. Thomas was ultimately stabbed to death with a spear, not because of what he believed but because of what he said, he saw in the final one of the 11 is Simon. He went on to preach the message of Jesus in Africa and even Britain, which is where he would eventually be crucified in AD 74, not for what he believed, but for what he said he saw. And it wasn't only these guys. I wanna read you another little part of your Bible that speaks of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, you can turn there if you want, You can write it down. You can just allow me to take you there and read it. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 5. It says, Jesus appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have died. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me being Paul, the writer of this. What happens throughout your Bible is they give names, they give dates, they give locations to flag people as eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. They do this so that they can say, hey, if you don't believe what I'm saying, I would understand that because it's crazy. But here are some names and some people that also saw Jesus. Why don't you go ask them what they saw? By the hundreds, go ask them what they saw. Maybe you don't believe me. Ask a different eyewitness. Paul, who wrote that based on his time with eyewitnesses and himself seeing Jesus, concluded that Jesus had in fact died and rose again. He wrote many of the books in your Bible about Jesus and how to follow Jesus. He is likely the biggest human reason. The message of Jesus has gone beyond its initial location to the ends of the earth. He is the biggest human reason for that. He was eventually apprehended by Nero and he was beheaded for what he said he believed and saw, which was the resurrected Jesus. There's a book of your Bible named Luke. Luke is 
a doctor who interviewed eyewitnesses, he came to the conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. And he was so convinced of it that he left his practice. He left his career and dedicated himself to other people hearing the message of Jesus. He traveled with Paul through various countries. He was hanged on an olive tree by the priests of Greece because he believed the resurrection to be true. And there's Mark who wrote another account of the life of Jesus. He was a friend of Peter. He believed Jesus rose from the dead based upon Peter's account. Mark was dragged to pieces by the people of Alexandria because of what he said about the resurrection. All of these books and all of these accounts are written with specific names to flag them as people who also had eyewitness accounts. It would be reasonable to hear a narrative that Jesus has raised from the dead and say, I don't know that I buy that yet. I might even want to buy that that's true. I maybe want to buy who Jesus is. I want to buy what he has to offer, but I'm not convinced that he is actually what he says. I don't have the evidence. And they would use names to flag him. You don't believe me. Ask this person. Ask them what they saw. Ask this church what they saw. Ask this person why they wrote that. They're giving evidence to back up faith that Jesus really rose from the dead. Now, now what we cannot debate is that there really was somebody historically named Jesus of Nazareth. That, that's actually not up for debate, Christian or not Christian. In 2012, a Bible scholar named Bart Ehrman wrote a book called Did Jesus Exist? The Historical Argument for Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Ehrman doesn't believe in God. In fact, he's made a fortune writing books that question and challenge the historic Christian faith. But he says this, the reality is that whatever else you may think about Jesus, like you can come to all kinds of different conclusions, but the reality is that he certainly did exist he goes on to say, this view is held by virtually every expert on the planet. Rather than it being naive to believe that Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago, it's actually naive not to. So we know that somebody named Jesus existed 2,000 years ago. What is up for debate is who is Jesus and what was he about? How important was Jesus actually? Now, what's interesting to me is the soil by which Christianity from this moment starts to grow and starts to thrive. It was never low cost to claim that you saw the resurrected Jesus or believed in the resurrected Jesus. That was never low cost. And you've got people at this time in the world where Nero is the greatest, most powerful person in the world. What he would do was he would take followers of Jesus he would sew them into dead animal skins and then he would release them to dogs to be eaten and killed. He would also take followers of Jesus and he would dip them in wax and then he would hang them up in his garden in the evenings and then he would light them on fire to light up the night in his garden. This is the soil by which Christianity starts to thrive. It was never low cost to say, I saw resurrected Jesus. I believe Jesus has risen from the dead. I believe he was who he said he was. And I believe the things that he offers humanity. It's so interesting that it was never easy to say those things, that you've got people by the thousands 
who claimed to have seen Jesus or believed that he was resurrected. And if you believe those things, radically changed their life. And from that soil, Christianity grows and goes to the ends of the earth. What we know is that Friday of Passion Week, Jesus dies and all of his followers go back to their normal lives. But then Sunday comes. And they see Jesus and that sparked in them a desire to give their life to make other people see him for who he was and to hear the message that he brought people. Even if it cost them everything. And it did cost them everything. It did cost them their life. They wouldn't have been devastated on Friday if Jesus wasn't actually dead and they wouldn't have given their lives to see more people believe the Jesus that they knew if he wasn't alive. This is the story as we zoom into his friends and followers. The narrative that could easily be doubted, could easily be questioned and challenged. They see Jesus risen from the dead and it changes everything for them. Because they believed that the resurrection did some things that rightly understood would change them as they are, change them for the rest of their life, and even change them for eternity. They believed that the resurrection meant the sacrifice of Jesus was accepted by God and applied to everybody who believed. They believed that the resurrection meant the best way to spend the rest of their lives was now getting the message of Jesus into the hands of people who have yet to believe it. Because there is now a way to be made right with God. This is Sunday of Passion Week. This is Easter, and it changed everything for this group of people. It also has the power to change everything for you and for me. Because if Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead, then he is who he claimed to be. And everything he claimed to be true and everything he claimed about the pathway to God in peace for sinful people, everything he claimed about you and me and everything he claimed about full and abundant life and eternal life, everything that comes with Jesus, if he has risen from the dead, is now true and willing to dedicate your life to. You at least have a group of people who believed here in the first century that they personally saw the resurrected Jesus and it changed everything for them and it also cost everything. This is what it means to believe that Jesus has risen. This is what we're here to do as a church is to proclaim who Jesus is and what he brings us in our city. Jesus has risen, then it would make make a lot of sense for me to know who he is, what are the things that he said, what are the teachings that he had, how did he live his life. It would make a lot of sense for me to do that. That's why we exist as a church, to get the message of risen Jesus into as many hands as we possibly can because there's life that comes with that message. And then we want to step into a space even a messy space for people like me who are broken and fall short of all kinds of standards. We want to step into there to say there is actually abundant life. Jesus speaks of when you become more and more and more like him. 
This is why we exist as a church and we celebrate risen Jesus and we also would would give our lives to see more people have access to that. We have an opportunity even now, even this morning, to sing some songs designed to celebrate and worship Jesus because he has risen and that that has changed everything for us and can change everything for you. I mean, let me pray for us and, and we'll move that direction. Father, uh, it is crazy some of the claims of Christianity. It's crazy some of the things Jesus said. It's, it's crazy even for me to talk publicly about wild things, that I can understand doubt. I can understand hard questions. I can understand challenge. And I ask what you do for me as you continue to allow me the strength and in the motivation to believe what seems to be unbelievable, I would, I would ask that you open my eyes to the eyewitness accounts to believe, to have faith, but not blind faith, faith in what has some evidence. Ask what you do in our city is you lead people into life. You lead them into life eternally. You lead them into life abundantly even here today. And we love you and... We want to worship you for who you are and what you've done and even who you proved to be. The resurrection of Jesus, lead us to that place here this morning and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A Gene, I mentioned, big, big basketball fan, Gene. Uh, I kept in contact with Gene past my high school years. We would talk on the phone every once in a while. I mentioned he used to come to some of my basketball games beyond high school. And a couple years ago, I got a phone call from Gene. He told me that within the next week or two, he was actually going to be dying. And he knew that Shaylin and I had just relocated and we moved. And so he asked me for my new address. And so I I gave him my new address. Later that week, I I had learned that Gene had passed away. But the next day, I got a, a package in the mail. And in that package was two of Gene's sweaters. He had come, he wrote a letter to me and he had come to have this like, this like funny relationship with me where at the end of his life, he actually believed I thought his sweaters were dope. He actually got himself there. What seems unbelievable and what seems like a stretch and what seems too easy to doubt, that can actually be true. And maybe you don't sit in the same seat as Gene. Maybe you haven't had the same, like, I don't believe, I don't think this is true, but now over here, it seems like there's some evidence behind it. Maybe that's your story. I want to invite you into that story. I want to invite you to maybe look at the claims of Jesus and say, if he has in fact risen from the dead, then I take everything Jesus brings. I take all of his teachings, I take all of his words, I take the lifestyle that he lived. Jesus comes with so much fullness. And if he has risen from the dead, I say yes to that and I step into it. I wanna invite you into that. If you have any desire to have a conversation or to help navigate what it looks like to move forward from here, there's gonna be people wearing name tags who are gonna make their way to the front at the end of the service. You can feel free to reach out, ask questions. Maybe you just need somebody to come up and pray with you. They're here to do that. 
So I want to invite you into that. I also want to invite you to stand. This is a good time to stand. And we're going to go into a time where we're going to celebrate Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and the fact that he has risen and brought us so much life with him.